Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book, Betsy Ten Boom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission of Time Worthy Books. And we are on Chapter 32. An hour after supper, the doorbell rang downstairs. Corey went to answer it and found a woman carrying a picnic basket. May I come in? She asked, glancing wearily over her shoulder. Corey, suspicious of what the woman wanted, pointed to the basket. What's in there? She lifted the top to reveal a tiny baby lying inside. Nestled beneath a soft cotton blanket. Oh, Corey exclaimed. She opened the door wide to let them in. When they reached the second floor, Corey steered the woman into the parlor and called for me. I came just as the woman opened the basket and gathered the baby in her arms. We had helped many people of every age and color, but this was our first infant. From somewhere deep inside, a strange maternal instinct welled up in me. Rising from a core at the depths of my being, it seemed as though it would overwhelm me. I took a deep breath, forced myself to focus on the moment. A baby, I exclaimed as I entered the room. Yes, the woman nodded, a girl. I drew near and looked at her with an admiring gaze, as adults often do. Is she yours? The woman shook her head. No, I'm a nurse at the hospital. She was born a few days ago. Then why have you brought her here? Her mother's Jewish, she said, as if that should explain the situation. I glanced away from the baby to look at the woman. And the father? We know nothing of the father. If the mother is Jewish, how was she able to give birth at the hospital? We had heard the prohibited treatment of Jews in all Dutch medical facilities. Some of us care more for the lives of others than the Nazi rules, the woman replied. She pushed back the sleeve of her jacket, checked the watch on her wrist. Can you help me? Her voice took an impatient tone. Can you find a place for her to live? Where's the mother, I asked calmly. The Germans took her. They wanted to get her before she gave birth, but the time they arrived, we'd already delivered the baby. And when they asked, we lied and said she had not yet had the baby. They took her immediately. Where is she? The nurse gave a knowing look. I think you can imagine what happened to her. She tugged at the blanket to move it higher up to the baby's chest. I kept Rachel at the hospital as long as I could, but people were asking questions and I had to move her out. Who's Rachel? Corey asked. The mother? No. She bounced the baby gently on her arms. This is Rachel. And then she looked over at me. Can you help? Yes, I replied finally. Of course. Then I reached out to take the baby. She laid her gently in my arms. I kissed her on the cheek. Feeling her close to me, so warm and cuddly, made me think of Vincent. And for a moment, I felt a twinge of anger at myself, putting him off way back then. But just as quickly as I moved away from it and thought of all the things we need to do now to make certain Rachel had a life of her own. The nurse never told us her own name. We never asked. That night in the parlor was the only time I ever saw her. She watched us a moment being silly with Rachel, and then she seemed satisfied that we would care for the child. Then without another word, she picked up the basket and started down the stairs. I listened for the door to open and heard her when she stepped outside. After she was gone, Corey said, Now what do we do? Well, I suppose we better figure out what to feed Rachel. We can't let her cry. No, Corey agreed. That would not be good. Who will take her? I have no idea, Corey replied. We don't. She paused in mid-sentence, her eyes wide as the broad smile spread over her face. I think I know just the couple. Who? 
Carol and Isabel, she said with delight, they'd be perfect. It was a strange suggestion coming from someone he had so horribly jilted, but it indeed appeared to be the perfect solution. Carol was ordained and assigned to a church south of Harlem. We knew from William, who still kept in touch with them, that Carol and Isabel had been trying to have children, but without success. Rachel seemed like the answer to their prayers. In addition, they lived outside the city. Sparingly populated towns and villages on the outskirts were much less heavily patrolled. There'd be little likelihood anyone would notice Rachel. And from what we had heard, the house where Carol and Isabel lived had plenty of rooms and lots of space. If they took her, perhaps we could later convince them to take others. The following morning, we sent a courier to Carol and asked him to come for a visit as early as convenience. A week later, he appeared at the shop. Corey took him upstairs to the parlor, where they shared tea and cake. I remained in my room to give them a few minutes alone to talk. From what Corey told me later, Carol seemed genuinely glad to see her, but he made no mention of the abrupt manner in which he had broken off the relationship and offered no apology. A half hour later, I came down to join them. Carol stood to greet us as I entered the room, and we said our hellos while standing, after which I brought a chair over from beside the piano, took a seat across from him, and got right to the point. We have a problem, I began. We're hoping you can help us solve it. He took a sip of tea. Certainly, I'll do what I can. What's the matter? From time to time, we care for children who've been abandoned by their parents. We have a good relationship with a local police station, and they work with us in finding homes for them. He had a puzzled look. I'm afraid I don't understand. You want me to find a home for one of these children? Not exactly, I replied. We have an infant living with us right now. He seemed startled by that, but I ignored him and kept going. She's less than a month old. Oh, my, Carol sank back in his chair. I plowed ahead. We were wondering if you and Isabel would like to take her as your own. As our own? Yes, I nodded. You mean raise one of these children, an infant, and pass it off as our own? This wasn't going well. I can't believe you're asking me this. Well, I said, determined to tell the rest, there's one more thing. What more could you possibly ask of me? The child is Jewish, I said flatly. Carol's mouth dropped open and the cup began to shake in his hand. Is this your idea of a joke, he roared? Not at all. Oh, I know. He turned to Corey with a cynical smile and pointed. This is your way of getting back at me over all these fantasies you had about us. That's nothing to do with that, Corey responded, and they weren't fantasies. You practically proposed when we were at Williams. Carol, I spoke up, trying to keep things under control. This is not a joke. It's not revenge. We really have a Jewish infant, and she really needs a home. You can't possibly have a Jewish infant, he retorted. It's against the law. His voice went cold. And if we took her into our home, we'd be breaking the law, too. By then, Corey was angry. You know what the Germans will do to her if they find her. Are you not a minister of the gospel? That has nothing to do with it, Carol snarled as he rose from his chair. Caring for Jewish babies is not my responsibility, and I have no control over what the German army does. I stood to face him. But you could save this child's life. At the risk of my own? Veins in his neck throbbed. And the life of Isabel? At the risk of losing all we worked for? He straightened his jacket. I should think not. And besides, even if I agree, Isabel would never go for it. My mother and father would be devastated if they knew of the child's race. They're convinced that the Jews brought all this unpleasantness on themselves and on us as well by the way they live and act. 
He cocked his head in an impetuous angle, and I must say I'm not totally convinced they're wrong. He handed me the teacup. I have to go, and I could be arrested simply for being here. The sound of his footsteps echoed through the house as he made his way down the stairs and out the front door. In the quiet of that moment, with only the sound of clocks ticking in the shop, I thought of his final comment. I could be arrested simply for being here. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 33. These these few ch- chapters seem to be very short, so I'm going to just continue on with that. Two nights later, Kit came to the house after curfew. I met him at the door and took him to the parlor where Corey was playing the piano. Papa was sitting in his favorite chair, reading the newspaper and complaining about the lack of news. Kick greeted them both and then said, Aunt Corey, you should come with me. She turned from the piano to face him. Where are we going? It's better if you don't know. You mean I should trust you? Yes, he smiled. You should trust me. Kick was an honest young man and involved in almost everything we did to help resettle Jews and others in need of avoiding the Germans. But I was worried about them being out past the curfew hour. You'll need a reason, I offered, if someone asks. Kick looked puzzled. A reason? A reason to be out. It's well past curfew. You should plan now what to say if you get stopped, so your stories will match. Okay, Corey nodded. I'll say that we're on our way to see my sister who's ill. That's good, Kick agreed. But I can say your sister is my mother, which is true. That way I won't have to be worried about looking guilty because I wouldn't be lying. The fact that he hadn't thought of this in advance only added to my concern about their outing. But Corey seemed not to be worried at all. She followed him down the stairs, and they went through the rear door. Papa spent the remainder of the evening in the parlor, waiting for their return. Sometime after midnight, Papa went upstairs to bed. Not long after that, I heard the rear door open downstairs, followed by the sound of Corey's footsteps. I was relieved she had made it back safely and was waiting in the kitchen when she appeared on the second floor. Have any trouble? No, she replied, not at all. Where did you go? To Herman Slurring's home. He took you to see Slurring? Actually, it was a meeting with a number of people. What was it about? No one said exactly, but I think they were part of the Dutch underground resistance. Everyone seemed to be involved in many different things. Getting downed Allied pilots back to England, disrupting German activity wherever possible, providing extra sources of food for those who are in hiding. Which reminds me, she paused while she reached into her left coat pocket. Slurring sent this for us. She handed me a small white package. I opened it to find tea leaves. Real tea, I guess, with my eyes open wide. We've been reusing the same tea for weeks, and it was dreadful. The sight of fresh tea leaves made me forget how anxious I was feeling over the kinds of things her newfound friends were doing. And, Corey grinned, it will go well with this. She put her hand in the right coat pocket and brought out another small package and set it on the counter. Real sugar. My mouth fell open at the sight of it. We hadn't had real sugar in months. Slurring gave you this? Yes, she nodded, and I can get more. Where does he get it? I don't know, Corey shrugged, but he seemed to have plenty. He served cake and cookies and sweet rolls as if it wasn't a problem. Stop, I said playfully. You're making me hungry. How Slurring was able to procure commodities of that nature was a mystery to me, but I was glad Corey had an enjoyable evening. I put the sugar and tea on the shelf in the cupboard and then turned to her. So why did they want to see you? I think just to put us in touch with a broader group of contacts. Most of them were familiar with what we've been doing, and they all seemed to be like us, working with a network they built themselves. 
No one spoke about the details, but that was my sense. Meet anybody who can help us? Yes, as a matter of fact, one of the men offered to build a secret room for us. My forehead wrinkled in a frown. A secret room? A place to hide our visitors. I was immediately suspicious. Many people made their living betraying their friends and family to the Germans. As the occupation grew longer, they became more devious in the means of their luring others into a trap. I wasn't excited about allowing a stranger into our house and sharing with them the intimate details of our work. Why did he make that offer? Why did he offer to help? Yes, I think he's just sympathetic to the Jewish cause. They all are. But it sounds like they are into other things, things that would expose us to terrible risk. Helping the Jews is one thing. Getting involved in the war effort would get us shot on the spot if we were discovered. You sound like Carol now, Corey said with a smirk. I know, but with the Jews, we're just helping people who face dire circumstances. We aren't shooting at German soldiers or destroying their property. This group you met tonight, they're different. But a hiding place is a good idea and would be a big benefit for us and for the people staying at our house. We've developed a large network. At any given time, we have a number of people here who are at risk. We are at risk just having them here. If they get caught, we get caught. Having a hiding place would help alleviate some of that risk. Papa appeared in the doorway dressed in his pajamas and robe. You both know Herman, he said without interruption. He's been in the shop many times and a guest in our home often. If he says the fellow is reputable, I think we can trust him. What's the man's name? Smith, Cora replied. She told me later that wasn't his real name, but we didn't bother explaining it to Papa. Well, anyway, I heard you two talking and wanted to say, I think we should do it. Then he turned around and started back to his room. I looked over at Corey. If you think it's okay, then it's okay with me. A few days later, Mr. Smith arrived at the shop and I took him upstairs. He checked every room in the house and then I showed him the places we'd been hiding the valuables others brought to us for safekeeping. Good use of space, Smith said with a nod and a clever way of hiding the architectural defects. But it's the first place the Germans will look. The first place? We thought the places were great for hiding things. Is it that obvious? Not to the untrained eye, but the Germans have searched many buildings many times. They would recognize these cubby holes right away. He seemed to know what he was talking about, so I asked, If you built a secret room, where would you put it? Without a moment's hesitation, he said, In the bedroom you showed me on the third floor. That was Corey's room. Why there, I asked. It's located on the top floor. That gives your people the most time to get into the hidden room as the Germans search their way up. He gestured in that direction. Take me to it again. I took him upstairs to Corey's room and watched as he glanced around. He nodded his head thoughtfully as he surveyed the space. This will work just fine. He drew a measuring tape from the pocket of his jacket and measured a distance out from the extending wall. We'll build a new wall right here, he added. Set the bricks right where my foot is. Bricks? I hadn't the faintest notion why he'd built of anything other than wood. Wood rings hollow and struck, he explained. One tap and they'd know it was a false wall. Three days later, workmen arrived at the house. With the help of others from their network, they entered the shop under the guise of being our customers. Once inside, they moved quickly upstairs where they unloaded bricks and dry mortar mix beneath their coats. Over the next ten days, the wall took shape, and when they were finished, others came to plaster over the bricks. After the plaster dried, they painted the new wall to match the rest of the room and built a bookcase in one corner. The lower rear panel of it was the access door into the secret room. When Mr. Smith showed us the finished product, 
I was impressed. Other than the smell of fresh paint, the wall looked as if it were always there. That's how I wanted to look, he grinned. Come on, you need to see inside the room. He knelt on the floor by the bookcase and placed his hand against the back panel, two shelves from the bottom. When you push here, the panel swings out of the way. He pressed his hand firmly against it, and the panel swung into the room. Then he crawled inside. I followed after him and found the opening was just wide enough for us to fit through. Once inside, I stood and looked around. It's big enough for two people to lie on the floor, I noted, but we often have more than that with us. You should consider limiting the number of people you keep here. I know it's difficult to turn someone away, but you'll be risking the safety of everyone if you don't. We've not been willing to turn anyone away. They can always alternate. Some can stand while others sit. I don't think five could sit together on the floor, but they might. I was already feeling warm, so I asked, Won't it get stuffy in here? The room's not airtight, so they won't suffocate, if that's what you mean. But yes, it might get hot, but not so hot that anyone would die from it. We'll need a can for waste, I observed, and one for water, he added. Heart tack would give them a little nourishment if they're in here for more than a day. And vitamins, I suggested. Vitamins would be great, he added. That will work well. I glanced around once more, admiring the handiwork, and then dropped to my knees and called out to the bedroom. Smith came out behind me and made sure the panel closed tightly. If it isn't tight, he warned, they'll see it right away. We can put some books on the shelves to help cover it. Yes, by all means, use it and make it look real. You've done us a big favor, I said as we started towards the hole. Don't mention it. You're in good shape now. You just need a buzzer and you'll be all set. I glanced at him over my shoulder. A buzzer? We had no idea what he meant. A warning buzzer, like your doorbell, only it makes a buzzing sound so no one outside the house will hear it. To warn everyone when someone is suspicious is approaching. I was curious. How does a buzzer work? It had a little electrical button switches in the places around the house, beneath the sill of a front window, underneath the top of a desk in the shop, other places like that. Someone sees a soldier coming, they press the button. Buzzer goes off, visitors get in the room, and the rest of you make the place look like only three people live there. I was skeptical we could do all of that. We'd, we'd have enough time? You will if you practice. I'll keep that in mind. Everyone who hides people has a buzzer, he added. In the coming weeks, the pace quickened even more with couriers coming and going by the hour. Our network grew to include 80 people actively involved in arranging places for Jews to live then transporting them to various locations. I was certain we were far too obvious, but people kept coming for help, and in spite of what Smith had suggested, we never turned down anyone. Then one day, Vincent came by with new ration cards and told us the telephone would be working again soon. That would be great, I exclaimed, and we checked it every day after his visit. When I picked it up on the fifth day, an operator came on the line. We were thrilled. Having it meant we were back in touch with the world, at least in some small measure, even if most of our network had no access to a phone. But I was suspicious of it, too. All phone calls still went through an operator's switchboard. Someone could easily overhear our conversation or intentionally listen in. I raised my concerns with Vincent, but he assured me that most of the telephone operators were on our side. Just to be sure, Corey and I devised a code language that referenced the watch business. It seemed like an obvious choice. We operated a watch shop. Anyone calling our house ought to be calling about something related to the watch. Under our coded system, for instance, someone having a problem with the face of a watch meant they had a person in need of assistance whose facial features were obviously and unavoidably Jewish. 
particularly difficult people to place because they had no hope of passing as non-Jews. Someone who needed to be hidden immediately was a watch in need of quick repair. Reference to two watches meant a husband and wife. During that time, we also acquired a number of permanent residents in our home. Meyer Mosel was one of those whose appearance was too Jewish to avoid. At first, we thought we could eventually find a home for him somewhere else. But the longer he stayed was the more a part of our daily routine he became. After a while, we stopped looking for somewhere to send him and made him a permanent resident at the Bayer. Louis, the apprentice turned assistant, lived on the far side of the town and traveled back and forth every day. One morning on the way to the shop, he was confronted by German soldiers who were rounding up men to send to the factories as conscripted laborers. Lewis managed to escape, but it was a close call. After that, we told him not to go home. He stayed with us. Edmund Hink, the foster child who became a lawyer with an office up the street, faced the same problem, as did Hans Langdart, who is now a teacher, then Thea da Costa. Metra Monsanto and Mary Italis were all too much at risk for others to take, so they stayed with us too. In all, we had eight people at the house who were going to be with us until the end of the war. That's how we talked about the future. We never counted on anything less than an Allied victory and the removal of the Germans from our country. Considering a future holding anything less than total victory offered us no hope, and we needed all the hope we could get. With eight extra people at the house, the secret room was packed when they all squeezed into it. I kept reminding them it was better than being caught by the Germans, to which they all agreed. We devised a plan to inform them by word of mouth when a threat appeared, but without a buzzer system, it was cumbersome. Even so, we conducted regular drills and worked to get our disappearing time down to the three minutes Smith had advised. We never made it that quickly, but we improved with each drill. Smith's suggestion that we install a buzzer system was a good one, but I didn't know how to do it or even who to ask. Consequently, it didn't get done. At night, three extra residents slept in a secret room. The others all slept on the same floor but in a bed down the hall from Corey. We relied on one of them to hear the soldiers below alert the others and get into the room quietly enough and quickly enough to avoid being discovered. During the day, our word-of-mouth scheme relied on at least one of the permanent residents being on the second floor. That person would then ascend the stairs, informing the others as they made their way to the top floor. It was not the best system, but it was all we had until I could figure out what to do about a buzzer. As the events would soon show, we were much closer to trouble than we realized. That next chapter is 34, and we'll find out what happens after this with the buzzer system. I love you. I am praying for you, and bye-bye for now.